Greetings and welcome to Mind Matters News. Our brains are amazingly complex systems, and like most complex systems, there's unfortunately lots of ways things can go wrong. However, our brain is also adaptive, able to cope with or heal from some issues, either on its own over time or with medical intervention. Today, we have neurologist Dr. Andrew Knox to discuss some of what can go wrong and how we can fix certain issues. Along the way, we'll also talk about how our minds interact with our bodies and the mysteries behind that connection. Enjoy! Welcome to Mind Matters News. I am your brainy host, Robert J. Marks. You know, the brain is a marvelous organ still not totally understood. Artificial neural networks, my field, are devices, artificial intelligence, that are supposed to be a simulation of the human brain. But comparing the brain to artificial neural networks is like comparing the human heart to a pump handle. We're just not even close. We are far from any sort of duplication of the human brain. And the gap is wide, and we might never get there. I also know that as I get older, I feel my brain or my mind, I'm not sure which, slowing down. But the brain also breaks, and there is depression, autism, epilepsy, and a number of other things Neurologists and neurosurgeons can sometimes fix the human brain, and that's what we want to talk about today on Mind Matters News. Our guest is Dr. Andrew Knox. Dr. Knox is a neurologist at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health who specializes in childhood epilepsy, intractable epilepsy, and evaluation for epilepsy surgery. Andrew, welcome. Thanks so much. You know, um, I, I got to ask you a per, kind of a personal question. You work with kids whose brains are broken. Yep. Man, I would find this tough. You see little kids and you see them having epileptic seizures and you see kids with brain damage. And I don't know, I, I would have a hard time just leaving this at work and not taking it home. Yeah. But I suspect people in your profession have to develop kind of rhino skin and separate the, the medical aspects from your personal feelings. Do, you experience, do your experiences bother you after you work sometimes? Well, sometimes they do. Uh, you know, actually, one of the wonderful things about doing epilepsy um, is that there's a wide spectrum of what epilepsy looks like. So, you know, there are some kids who uh, have like frequent daily seizures that cause all sorts of problems. They have a lot of other cognitive problems too. And those cases are hard, but there are plenty of other kids who, you know, have a few seizures over the course of their life and they go away after a few years. So you see kids in lots of different places, which, which I think is helpful just with, uh, you know, dealing with fatigue and caring for patients. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, and even in the difficult cases, you know, it's it is gratifying to work with those families. I've met some amazing people that way, and so there's good that comes out of it. I, you know, I guess that is the positive side. Every once in a while, when you see a positive result, it must give you a warm feeling that you were part of achieving that result. That's really that's really kind of cool. Yeah, and one of one of the big things I think that is part of being a doctor or part of medicine is just being with people in cases when they're sick or when things are difficult uh, and helping them through those times. So that's an important thing we can do for patients, even if, you know, there's not a cure that we can offer to them for their specific medical problem. Okay. So in a way, it's kind of like a ministry for you in a way, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Andrew, you got you to help me here. Uh, and I'm going to start by confessing my ignorance. I don't have a clear idea of the difference between 
the the professions that deal with the brain. There's neurologists, there's neuroscientists, there's psychiatrists and psychologists. And each, I suspect, looks at the brain from a different angle. Now, you're a neurologist. How does a neurologist think about the brain? Do you have a special way to look at the brain? Yeah. So neurologists are usually primarily concerned with thinking about the hardware of the brain. So disorders where you can see some part of the brain is broken, either looking, you know, with imaging studies uh, or by looking with pathology under a microscope or, you know, looking with EEG, a study that looks at brainwave activity. Um, So we're sort of more concerned with low level brain problems. Psychiatry and psychology usually approach uh, the brain from uh, the standpoint of the mind. So thinking about not what's happening with the physical substrate of the brain, but, you know, what is happening in people's thought processes and what sort of dysfunction is there in thought processes. Now, obviously, there's overlap between the two. Yeah, that's uh, what I was going to that's what I was going to ask. There, there, there has to be an overlap between the two. So right. What, what is right. that? Um, well, that overlap can in some ways is still not totally well understood, right? Uh, it can come out in different ways. So if you think about depression, say, you know, there are uh, certain brain structures that are implicated in depression. Uh, there are things like neurotransmitters that are implicated in depression. There's certainly cases of depression where, you know, treating with a particular medication that addresses a neurotransmitter will improve a person's depression or help get rid of the problem. Okay, let's drill down a little bit. Uh, could you could you define and talk about neurotransmitters? What is that, and why are you concerned with them? Uh, yes. So the brain, you know, at its base level is comprised of neurons, these cells that um, use electrical signals to sort of integrate information, then communicate with each other. Um, And then there's other supportive tissues or uh, glial tissues. So the point of neurons is sort of to communicate with each other. And the way they communicate with each other is by neurotransmitters. You have um, structures called synapses, which are the connections between uh, the output coming from one neuron and the input to another neuron. Um, So they communicate via uh, little chemical messengers. Uh, and that's what you refer or what I'm referring to when I say neurotransmitters. I see. Substances that neurons use to communicate with each other. Uh, as I age, I mentioned I felt my brain slowing down. Are my neurotransmitters <laughs> kind of being turned down with a little knob uh, as a function of age? Um, yeah, you could potentially say that. Um, certainly in kids, you know, if you look at how brains develop over the first 18 years of life, you can see that. Um, kids' brains are actually building more synapses, so more of those connections between uh, different neurons over the first 10 years of life. You know, a kid may have actually as many as twice as many neurons as a typical adult. Really? Yeah. And then part of maturing is actually getting rid of extra synapses. Now, are these synapses that you're not using in some sense? Yeah. Your brain is sort of developing its structure in real time or pathways or communication that makes sense between neurons. You know, there's probably a nice analogy to uh, how you think about neural networks. You know, as you you start out with a neural network and then you train it, and as you train it, some uh, connections become stronger, some become weaker. The brain goes further to actually remove some of those connections entirely. 
And that probably improves cognitive function when you are uh, in the uh, childhood age range. That's interesting. You know, in, in artificial neural networks, there used to be a process, I haven't heard about this for years, uh, called pruning. Right. Wherein if you have if you have some neurons that are kind of sitting there and not doing anything, you know, they will they will eventually be removed algorithmically from what's happening. Say, for example, even inputs. Maybe you're trying to classify a dog from a cat or something, and one of your inputs is the weather in Wisconsin. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And you know, that is gonna have nothing to do with whether what you're talking about is a is a cat or a dog. So that Weather in uh, Wisconsin node is going to be totally removed. Yeah. So that, that does happen in artificial neural networks. So interesting. So that happens in kids as we age. It does. Yeah. And that's part of normal brain development. And probably, you know, for the exact same reasons you said, you, those some of those initial connections that you make probably are not useful. So as you get older, as you get experience, the brain prunes down to um, the connections that are most beneficial. Now, does the getting rid of the neurons continue or does it level off at some place? I'm hoping you, I'm hoping you say it levels <laughs> off, but uh, it does level off. Okay, and good, here good. we're not okay. talking about getting rid of the neurons either. We're just talking about getting rid of some of the connections between different neurons. So by and large, the number of neurons stays about the same. I see. Interesting. So, okay, we've talked about the difference between neurology and uh, psychology, and I guess this is, you characterized it as hardware versus software, right? You deal with the hardware and the psychologists deal with the software uh, of the mind. So let's get now into some of the work that you do and talk about how the brain breaks. Uh, That's that's a pretty strong statement. Uh, Breaks is different than slows down. So how does a brain break? Right. I mean, that is, you know, fundamentally what neurology studies. So there are many different ways the brain can break. And we can go through some of the typical examples. And uh, and it, I think it gives some good insight into how neurologists think about um, the connection between brains and minds, too. Okay, good, good. So, you know, most people think of neurology as having come out of the study of strokes, a typical problem that comes up in um usually later on in life, but there are kids who have strokes as well. The basic idea of a stroke is that you have something that blocks blood flow um, to a particular part of the brain. And when that happens, then the brain tissue in a particular area dies. So neurologists who cared for patients with strokes noticed that, you know, many patients come in sort of with the same set of symptoms. And so then early on, they would do pathology. Um, So they would look at the brain after the patient had died and found that, you know, the brain tissue was lost in a particular area. And they noticed that there was a good correlation between losing brain tissue in a particular area and the symptoms the patient might have. Okay. For example, if you had a stroke in what we would call a primary motor area, an area with the connections um, to motor pathways through the rest of the body, you know, all of those patients might lose the ability to move their arm on one side of the body or their leg or their face or all three of those things. Now, some of those things I think uh, people people can recover from. And I've heard the word neuroplasticity. It's kind of like if 
if part of the brain fails, then another part of the brain takes over. Is that right? Yes. I'm sure that there's cases where, where you can't cure it, but there are cases where you can. And does neuroplasticity play a role in that? Yeah, it absolutely does. So there actually aren't too many areas where if you have an injury to that part of the brain, you can't have other parts of the brain take over. Wow. There, there are a few special areas. So again, areas involved with language to some extent are less plastic. Visual pathways are sort of hard-coded uh, into the brain. So strokes and primary visual areas, you wouldn't expect to recover normal vision after that. Similar for primary motor areas, usually if you have a stroke in a primary motor area, um, you would expect to sort of have long-term motor deficits. Okay. In, 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 a, in a motor area, you mean things that just affect how you move your arms and legs and things yeah, of that sort? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yep. Those are sort of the big three. that There are some sensory, area, sensory areas that are the same way, where if you have a stroke in a primary sensory area, you might always have problems, you know, sensing or feeling sensation in your right hand or your right leg or something like that. But again, those are sort of the specific exceptions to the more general rule that the brain is good at moving function between different areas. I find that amazing. Uh, that, that, that's just to me astonishing. You know, there, there are very overt cases where you see this happening. I've seen blind people, for example, that aren't using the neurons that they were supposed to use for sight. And they've developed the capability of going into a room and just clicking, going and hearing the echo like a bat. And actually, yeah. and actually seeing uh, through the through the echo their environment, uh, and that is an astonishing application of neuroplasticity. I think some of the other things that you're talking about a little bit more subtle. You see the recovery, but they're not as not as kind of in your face as the clicking. Right. Well, that's a. I would say that's a different sort of way of coping. So it's they haven't regained an ability that they had before, uh, but they've developed. Um, a different set of abilities they have. So, you know, like you say, if you lose the sense of vision, your sense of hearing may become more acute. You may, it may become better and you may, um, yeah, develop ways to use that to, to sort of replace that other function. But the, the examples I was talking about, I was actually talking more about recovering um, a function that you had before. So if you have a stroke I in the see. left motor area, and you for a while can't move your right hand. Some, even after six months, you can have some recovery of that function, even though those neurons aren't growing back. And that's because there are connections from the other side of the brain to that hand as well. So those connections may become stronger and you may be able to use them better. I see. So, so there is a difference between um, adapting for something you haven't had since birth and then adapting from a function that you've lost through, for example, a stroke. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I would make a distinction between adapting for loss of a function by developing a new function that you don't usually, or that you wouldn't have developed otherwise, versus the brain adapting to recover a function that you've lost, that same function. Now, strokes in kids, what, what's the primary cause of that? Is it something which is genetic? Is it is it something that they've it's something that's happened to them, an accident? Uh... Yeah, it's it's a spectrum of things. Um, their infections can actually be a common cause um, or an immune response to an infection. Clotting disorders can be a common cause. 
There's a disease called sickle cell disease, which can be a common cause for stroke in kids. Yes. Actually, there are a number of kids now who have substantial um, heart malformations or congenital cardiac problems. 40 years ago, many of those kids would have just died very early in life. Now they can actually live relatively full lives. Uh, but one of the consequences of their cardiac disease, they're more prone to developing clots and that sort of thing, which can be a cause for stroke. Okay. So um, they're a, pa- a patient population where we see strokes in kids a little more often. I see. Okay. Uh, have you noticed any increase or decrease in the number of strokes the kids have, or has that kind of been something which has been constant? I, I think that's something that's been relatively constant. And again, we see it much less in kids than in adults, but... But we do see them from time to time. One of the ways you mentioned that brains can break is dementia. Yeah. And I always associate dementia with old age. But uh, you can kids have dementia? So there are some disorders where kids can have dementia. So dementia is a little different from strokes. Strokes, the idea is you have an injury to a particular part of the brain and then you wind up losing the function that goes with that particular area of the brain. Dementia, usually you have a problem that affects the whole brain at the same time now, or at least the brain more diffusely. So it's not one particular area of the brain, it's the brain as a whole. You don't lose all of the neurons in the brain at the same time, but you start to progressively have injury to more and more neurons throughout the whole brain. So that causes this different sort of change where you see loss of cognitive function over time. So you you, you can say that dementia is kind of distributed, whereas yeah, strokes exactly. are localized. Right. And I less see. vocal. Okay. Now, uh, you know, there are exceptions to everything in neurology, but yeah, I think that's a good way to think about dementia. In kids, so kids can have sometimes particular kinds of genetic or... Uh, problems with um, uh, with cellular processes that lead to something like dementia. So in adults, it's much more likely to be a part of, you know, the natural aging process. Yes. In children, usually it would take a specific um, disorder that they have that would cause earlier onset dementia. So it is something which is gradual then? It is gradual, yeah. You think of strokes being something that you see the effects of the stroke over minutes to hours. Dementia, usually you think of seeing the effects over months to years. Okay. Yeah. And in adults, you know, there are... So again, usually you don't necessarily lose one particular function like on one side of the body, but you see the effects of that sort of diffuse loss of um, of neurons. You see that with more global cognitive functions, so problems paying attention to things, problems with memory, problems with, uh, yeah, just understanding the world around you. And, and it's though some of those symptoms can follow really interesting progressions that, you know, maybe give some insights into how brains work. Uh, for, for example, I, yeah, I would like to hear about this. What would be a progression that would give you an insight into the way the brain works? Well, so, you know, I've thought at times, how does the brain store memories? Yes. Um, um, there are different schemes for storing memories. But patients with Alzheimer's seem to have this progression where um, as you get further down the disease, more of their early memories seem to come back to the surface, or it often seems like they're convinced they're living in the world they lived in when they were a child. Um, yeah, and it's made me wonder if 
the way the brain stores memories, it's an associative sort of scheme where it uses the previous memories you have to sort of build up into new memories. And then as you have injury to the brain, perhaps you lose those most recent memories first and then sort of go backwards through that scheme. Okay. So Alzheimer is a type of um, dementia. Mm-hmm. Uh, do kids get Alzheimer's? Kids generally do not get Alzheimer's. Um, you know, many of the dementias can look similar, you know, with different sorts of emphases. There are certain language proce- processes that are a particular problem with Alzheimer's. Uh, there's another kind of uh, dementia called frontotemporal dementia, where um, decision making and controlling appropriate behaviors tends to be the bigger problem. Those, again, are all sort of adult onset uh, dementias. Yes. Okay. Uh, the pediatric dementias are more specific to specific genetic disorders. Um, and usually they have other associated symptoms, too. One example might be juvenile Huntington's disease. Ooh, okay, um, that's so, not good. Yeah, it's not. Uh, so those children would have dementia, and along with it, they would usually have other motor disorders, too. Problems like dystonia, where muscles are stiff in ways they aren't supposed to be. I see. You know, I learned a new word from um, our conversation before, and I practiced pronouncing it, but I'm probably going to screw it up. Uh, paroxysmal. Paroxysmal. <laughs> paroxysmal. Yeah. Okay, I, I had it right, but I screwed it up there. What's a, what, what, what is that? I'm not going to try to say it again. Yeah. What is, what that is a paroxysmal of... disorder? Yeah. So that's sort of a blanket term for any kind of problem that suddenly comes and then goes. Ooh. So epilepsy or seizures would be an example of a paroxysmal disorder. You know, everything's working fine. And then the seizure happens. Something's dramatically different. It ends. And then things go back to normal. So a seizure would be an example of that. Yep. A seizure would be an example. Uh, another word Another word I learned from you is syncope. Oh, yeah. Right. So syncope often looks like a seizure. Uh, syncope is basically a brief loss of consciousness, which usually happens because for one reason or another, you don't get enough blood flow up to your head. So probably many people have had the experience of um, standing up and then suddenly feeling kind of lightheaded. Maybe you see some tunnel vision, some black blurriness on the the edges of your vision. Oh, I see I see little uh, little dots. Oh, yep, yep, dots can happen too. And and if that's dramatic enough, you know, some people may have experienced that the the blackness on the edges of your vision eventually absorbs your whole vision and you have other strange feelings and then suddenly you wake up on the floor looking up at people who are wondering what just happened to you. That would be a syncopal episode where you totally lost consciousness because for a short period of time, you didn't have enough blood flow to your brain. And at what point should I be concerned if I'm suffering from syncope? Because I I get up too quick. I have low blood pressure. I get up too quick. Whoa, too dizzy. I got to get up kind of slow. But there was one time when I was a teenager that I got up real quick and zoop, I was Exactly like you said, I was sitting back down and people were looking at me saying, are you okay? And I thought, well, yep. I, I don't know what happened. I've done that too. Yeah. Really? Okay. Most people, particularly young people, don't need to worry if they have syncope. The most common cause is because your blood pressure sits sort of low. And so then your body doesn't compensate well when you stand up. Um, the only problem that really causes for you is you tend to almost pass out sometimes. 
There are other patients who have what's called a vasovagal response. That's the sort of scenario where someone is coming at you with a needle to draw your blood and all of a sudden you feel kind of sweaty and not so good. And then you might have a similar syncopal episode uh, because of that response to that stimulus that you have. So those are the common causes of syncope. Those are pretty benign. They won't cause you any long-term problems. There can be some other causes that are a little more serious. There are some kinds of heart dysfunction that can cause syncope. So there are a few rare people who have syncope who might have a more serious issue, but that is the exception rather than the rule. Okay. You know, uh, what do they call the person that takes your blood? They have a fancy word for it. A phlebotomist. A phlebotomist, yes. Now, I give blood regularly. I go to functional medicine, and they, uh -huh. they take my blood all the time. Yeah. And I used to be scared, and then I realized that the expectation was a heck of a lot worse than the realization. So yep. I just swallowed, and now I look at the needle going in and going, oh, that's that's interesting. But I asked these, um, I asked these people, who are the people that wimp out the most? And on more than one occasion, I think for three different uh, phlebotomists, uh, they said that it's the guys that come in with big muscles and tattoos, <laughs> which I thought was very interesting. It's kind of like they want to put up this facade of this big, tough, macho guy, but they come in and they face a needle and they get all sweaty and stuff. Um, so there, there's something deep and psychological about that, I think. Uh you know, in the diagnosis of some of these things, especially dementia, let's talk about dementia again. Mm -hmm. It doesn't yeah. look like that's something which would be diagnosed by a neurologist. That's more of a psychologist uh, diagnosis. Well, is that right? Or is usually it, is actually, so dementia is still something that's managed by neurologists. So they, yeah, some of this is just, you know, historically who's managed what. But there, again, dementia does come out of some change in the brain hardware, right? So for uh, Alzheimer's disease, if you look on pathology, there are, there are abnormalities that are not supposed to be there. They call talk about plaques and tangles that you can see. So Plaques and tangles. Is this in the pathology of the brain? Yes. This is on the pathology. I see. So you have substance accumulating that's not supposed to be there which causes injury to the brain and this progressive sort of loss of function. So yeah, dementia has always sort of been owned as a neurologic disorder and is usually something that neurologists manage. With Alzheimer's, you know, people have been looking for a long time for uh, treatments for this disorder, right? For medications that can slow progression. Sure. Um, and there are some that are available, but they work much less well than we would like. And yeah, and, Right. The field continues to look for, you know, things that you can do to slow that process. Okay. But if you're thinking about, you know, about the different, the contrast between neurology and psychology, again, something like depression would be a more typical sort of psychology owned disorder uh -huh. where you have, you know, often you can identify particular thought patterns that are also associated with, um, with that disorder. And the strategies for coping with the disorder often are rooted in like changing those thought processes, things like cognitive behavioral therapy. Yes. You also talked about something called non-epileptic seizures. What is a non-epileptic seizure? Every seizure that I've ever seen is epileptic. You know, the people's eyes. I, I had a student, a master's student that suffered from epilepsy. And it's... Um, 
it's not a fun thing to be in the room when they suffer a seizure. You know, it's it's something which comes, they, they wake up, uh, at least in this case, he was a little cloudy-minded, but eventually mm-hmm. regained his senses. But there's a non-epileptic seizure. What What would that be? Yeah, so this is a great example of sort of the interface between neurology and psychiatry. So a patient who has non-epileptic seizures experiences all the symptoms of a seizure. So from their perspective, they, you know, might notice involuntary movements of their body, and then they might lose consciousness and then wake up later. Okay. Uh, Similar to a patient who has an epileptic seizure. The difference is that if that patient, if you were recording their brain waves, you wouldn't see any sort of change in the brain wave pattern. And so it's thought that those sorts of seizures come not out of dysfunction of particular neurons, but of certain thought processes or certain thoughts that, you know, potentially lie in the subconscious. Ooh. Let me develop that a little further. So taking a step back and just talking about what is an epileptic seizure. So what we think happens during an epileptic seizure, usually you have your neurons are firing off at sort of their appropriate times, working on their particular tasks that they have. The the analogy I like to use with patients is you can think of it like a city full of people. The people are all going about doing their particular jobs or things that they're doing. During an epileptic seizure, for a variety of different reasons, um, neurons usually wind up firing off together all at the same time in a way that's not helpful. I explain this to patients as, you can think of it as a group of people in the city start to have a riot. They're all upset about something enough that they gather together, they all go to the center of the town and are yelling at people to change things. That riot goes on for a while and then eventually People go their separate ways, it stops, and the city goes back to functioning like normal. So you see evidence of that sort of a change in neuronal behavior if you're recording brain waves. So during an epileptic seizure, you see spikes in the brainwave patterns that happen, you know, like a couple of times a second or even many times a second. So that's how I think of an epileptic seizure. Does that explanation make sense? Yes, it does. Yes. Okay, yeah. So then the contrast for a non-epileptic seizure, you don't have that same change in that the people are all coming together to the center of the city and rioting. You don't see those regular discharges on the EEG when you look at the brainwave patterns. In fact, if you look at an EEG during a non-epileptic seizure, the brainwave patterns are unchanged. So they look the same as the patient at any other time. But the patient is still experiencing all the symptoms of a seizure. And again, that happens because some part of how the brain is working to process what's happening is dysfunctional, usually in the patient's subconscious. So this can happen for a variety of different reasons. Uh, The classic illustration that I give patients is it's been described that patients who witness something that like is a terrible traumatic event that they can't process might wind up developing symptoms later that express that trauma that they just experienced. I see. Uh, So a different variant, this is, uh, this would be another variant of a functional neurologic disorder. Non-epileptic seizures are one example of a functional disorder. Another example might be, let's say someone witnessed the brutal murder of their spouse. Uh Uh-huh. And then 
two or three days later, suddenly they are blind. They can no longer see. The neurologist does the exam. They see the pupils seem to respond normally. The eyes even seem to track in ways that you would expect. And yet the person is unable to see. That would be another example of a functional disorder. The brain hardware, the pathways that process visual information are intact, uh, but there's something about that trauma that they witnessed that is preventing them from processing visual information um, and interpreting it the way they usually do. Does that make sense? Yeah, interesting. Okay. So I would I would describe, as an engineer, I would say that uh, an epileptic seizure is, the, it's a difference between coherence and non-coherence. Uh, coherence and kind of chaos, if you will, in the brain. Yeah. Yep, yep. You could actually absolutely distinguish things in that way. Okay. That, Again, that... the way I, I like to describe this to patients or explain it to patients that comes out of my computer back engineering background is... Sure. You know, epileptic seizures are like a hardware problem. You can see a change in, you know, the way that individual oh. neurons are firing off. Whereas non-epileptic seizures are more like a software problem. The The hardware is working okay, but the way the brain is processing the information is, uh, is not working correctly during that period of time. And patients seem to be able to understand or identify with that pretty well. You know, everyone can think of when like they've loaded or tried to run too many apps on their phone at the same time. And <laughs> the thing eventually just like locks up and then you have to restart it. And then it goes back to normal function. And, and that's probably good an analogy in some way for what happens during non-epileptic seizures. Understood. You mentioned uh, things happening in the subconscious. Do we have access um, to measure activity in the subconscious in any way? <sighs> The answer to that question is not straightforward, um, and there are probably who, people who could answer, answer it better than I could, um, but I think there's probably not a good way to objectively access what's happening in the subconscious. I see. Most insight into what is happening in the subconscious is going to come through the individual themselves, and it'll come over time. So that's part of the whole idea of psychotherapy is to to spend time, you know, getting more access to some of those things that are happening in the subconscious that may affect or that may cause some of the problems that you're having in a disorder like um, psychogenic non-epileptic seizures. Okay. Yeah, okay. Un understood. So that would probably, the subconscious would be more in the area of a, what a psychologist would deal with. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Wonderful. Another another disorder is um, functional gait disorders. Now, let me tell you about a um, an interview that I did with a a neuroscientist who was had kind of a potential cure for gait uh, disorders. He would show people walking with incredible gait disorders. In other words, they could hardly walk. They needed to grab the walls or handles in order to maintain their balance. But then they did something. They put a little vibrator on their tongues. Mm -hmm. And this, this vibrator on the tongue, it was almost like a miracle that people could, could walk better. Hmm. Uh, that seemed to be very strange. Have you ever heard of this? I have heard of things along those lines, not that specifically. 
Okay. Well, anyway, these guys, they, they tried to commercialize this. They went to the FDA, and there's a big difference between okaying a, a physical device that operates inside the body as opposed to external of the body. And since right. they put it in the mouth, they said it was internal to the body. So all of a sudden, the hoops that ah. these guys had to jump were just uh, just too, too great. Um, yeah. yeah. So unfortunately, it was something that was tried to be reduced to practice, but the business plan didn't make it. I, yeah. I, I thought that some of these these results were, um, you know, just just astonishing as in terms of the recovery. At least from what I saw, you never you never know what's true. You never know what's false. Right. It, it was right. on the web, so it must be true. I guess. Right. <laughs> right. So, so tell tell me about functional gait disorders and uh, how that relates to the way that the brain breaks. Yeah, you know, there those are really just another example of a functional disorder similar to. Um, a non-epileptic seizure or, or, you know, like functional blindness that we talked about. Sure. So really any sort of, or functional disorders that are rooted in disordered thought processes can wind up manifesting as a whole variety of different symptoms. So there are some patients who, yeah, because of their functional disorder, wake up and one day discover, I can't walk normally anymore. I'm just not able to walk. Right. There's some really interesting tricks that can help some of those patients. You know, you mentioned the tongue vibrator thing. Yes. Another trick that you see sometimes, if a patient is unable to walk normally forward, they may still be able to walk normally backward. Really? Yeah. And so identifying things like that are helpful for the treatment of the disorder. Usually those disorders you treat sort of along two different lines. Um, one part of the treatment is um, cognitive behavioral therapy. So working with a psychologist to identify, you know, what are the thought patterns that are causing this particular symptom in the first place? Uh, the other line that you approach them through is by um, usually doing therapies, and that needs to be targeted to what the particular problem is. But for someone who can't walk anymore, they're going to work with a physical therapist to sort of rebuild that ability to walk. And discovering something like, huh, I can't walk forward, but I can walk backward, gives you a good sort of jumping off point for then relearning sort of how to walk forward again. Interesting. Fascinating. Last time, we talked about all of the ways, or many of the ways, that the brain can break. We included in the strokes, injury to the brain, dementia, we found out, interestingly, dementia can uh, happen sometimes in little kids. We talked about um, about talked about seizure, and we talked about functional disorders like non-epileptic seizures and functional gait disorders. So we're first of all going to talk about how you fix some of these things, be a little bit more positive. And this, I'm sure, is what Dr. Knox takes home with him and has warm feelings about when he can help people <laughs> and, uh, you know, talk about some of the ways that we can we, we can make people better. So let's talk about this. What, what are some of the tools that we have to fix the brain? Yeah, you know, actually, among the uh, different medical specialties, people often think of neurology as the specialty where we don't have lots of tools to fix things. But that's not really true. There are a number of things that we can do for many, if not most of our patients. You know, I think broadly, maybe you could say a couple of different tools we have, and this is going to be different for different disorders, but there are medications that we can use to help address this function in the brain. 
in the specific field of epilepsy, there are other interventions you can do, like um, surgeries in some cases. Um, in other cases, uh, dietary changes can be helpful for treating seizures. There are devices that can be used to help address brain problems. The vagal nerve stimulator would be one example that has been around for a long time. And then there are, um, you know, for dysfunction that lies more in the realm of the mind, there are certainly psychologists are helpful too, or uh, strategies like cognitive behavioral therapy can address dysfunction. Okay. Well, let's talk about some of the medications. I think uh, one of the first ones for depression was Prozac. Mm-hmm. And I think this is like 30, 30 years old or something like that. Yeah. What do these medications do? So again, there are many different medications for different disorders. If you're thinking specifically of Prozac, that medication is a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. So I think last time we talked about uh, our brain has neurotransmitters, substances that are used to communicate between neurons across the synapse. And these medications uh, basically make those substances more or less available or perhaps more or less active at those synapses. So it sort of makes a change throughout the whole brain about how it is processing information. I see. I also want to talk about, uh, yeah, because I I, I was on Prozac for a while and man, it made a big difference. Hmm. I remember uh, taking Prozac. Gosh, this was, uh, I guess, 30 years ago when it first came out. And my wife made me go to the doctor and he said, how you doing? I said, I'm doing okay. My wife said, no, he's not doing very well. So the doctor said, well, let's try some Prozac. So I took some kind of reluctantly. And I remember waking up about a month later and sitting up in bed and going, oh my gosh, I'm happy. <laughs> yeah. it, was, it was a first time for a long time. So that serotonin, whatever that was, began to flow in my brain. And uh, it started the flow and, you know, it's been, it's been wonderful since. Yeah. So that was, that was just an amazing, an amazing medication. Yeah, that's great. I, we still definitely use that medication often yeah. as a first line treatment for uh, depression. Um, And that's the sort of thing we always hope happens when you use these medications. It doesn't always work out as well as it did for you, unfortunately. And I think that's not totally surprising when you think about how we're using these medications. This is another area, I think, where analogies to computers are sort of useful or analogies between computers and brains. Okay. You know... Using a medication to change how the brain is working is a little bit like if you had a computer, let's say you build a computer. Computers are built out of like, you know, billions of transistors, right? Yes. Let's say something was wrong with the transistor that you use to build your computer. So you have billions of these slightly misfunctioning transistors. If you could, uh, I don't know, let's say do something to your processor that you had that made all of them function a little more like they were supposed to, then it's conceivable that that might make your computer work better, right? But it's still kind of a blunt tool. Like, initially, it seemed kind of preposterous to me that you would expect to, you know, be able to, like, give all the transistors a little more electrons or something and expect your computer to work better. But it's kind of, we're, we're sort of doing a similar thing using medications that work on the brain. 
Interesting. I um, <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It, what it reminds yeah. me of, you always have analogies between uh, what you're learning and, and stuff you do. Uh, Dr. Egbert, who's the director of this show, and I, and, and I are working on a project of um, phased array antennas. And these mm-hmm. phased array antennas don't work as well as they could. Yeah. I, they're depressed. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. we, we could go in and we can tune the electronics. We can choose to tune the electronics so that the electronics uh, make it work better. So I guess that tuning of the electronics is kind right. of like this Prozac. Very, right. very interesting. I think there's analogies all over the place. Yes. Now, for something like depression, you know, most of us think of depression as just like as one disorder. But the reality is probably there are many different kinds of brain dysfunction that can lead to depression. Uh-huh. So there may be some patients where the real problem is there is just not enough serotonin around to do the normal sort of signaling. Uh-huh. Um, and that's a patient who may respond very well to that medication. But you may have another patient where, you know, there is a different neurotransmitter that is out of balance. Or perhaps the problem is not a specific neurotransmitter at all. Perhaps the problem lies specifically in the realm of dysfunctional thoughts that this patient patient has over and over. Maybe they keep thinking, I hate myself, I hate myself, I hate myself. And out of that comes their depression. You know, those patients, not all of those patients would respond in the same way to a medication like Prozac. I see. Because their depression is not due to the flow of serotonin. It is a psychological feedback that keeps feeding on itself. I got it. I got it. Right. Now, all this becomes more complicated because all these things are related, right? So the thought processes are happening in a brain that is built on these physical substrates. And the thoughts you have probably affect how neurons behave. It may affect levels of some of these neurotransmitters. So it's a sort of large entangled web that you can't, that is difficult to totally understand. Okay. What, one of the statistics I, I, I read is that people that take antidepressants are um, more prone to commit suicide. I thought this was such a stupid statistic because, <laughs> because people that are depressed already have this, this inclination towards suicide. And if the program and if the um, medication doesn't work, well, they, they go ahead with it. It's, it's a terrible, it's, it's a terrible thing to advertise. Yeah. It's, that comes about, you know, it's on a number of the package inserts of the antidepressants that they may increase risk for suicide. But is that is that really true, Andrew? Or is it that the sample set is actually biased towards suicide in the beginning? Oh, I, I, th- I think it definitely comes out of the sample set. And uh-huh. some of this just gets down to how uh, adverse effects are reported. So if you do a clinical trial studying a new antidepressant medication, You've got a group that has a placebo, so is not getting the drug, but they think they are. Sure. And then the group that is getting the true drug. And then you look at how many patients in each of those groups had a particular side effect. So you could look at suicide. And you might say, oh, look, like six patients who were treated with the medication committed suicide, but only three patients uh, who were treated with the placebo committed suicide. Ah, yes. So then they would say, well, this medication may increase your risk for suicide. But that doesn't show like causally that the medication is the reason for your committing suicide. I see. It, you know, it's just an association. It may be that everyone was having suicidal ideation and 
the patients who took the medicine um, got a little more motivated and more of them acted on um, those thoughts they were having. And sometimes it can just be natural variation between the two groups too, but you still have to report it if it's there. Wow. Interesting. Well, we're talking about ways to fix the brain. And yeah, one of them is, uh, is anti, well, is antidepressants and there's also anti-seizure medications. Yeah. Um, how do those work? Anti-seizure medications? How, how do they yeah, figure so out where the seizures are coming from and stop them? Anti-seizure medications work in a similar sort of way, really to the antidepressants, just acting on different receptors or neurotransmitters. So many of those medications, the first ones that were created, uh, act on a receptor called a GABA receptor or GABA. Could you spell that? A-G-A? G-A-B-A. GABA. GABA. Okay. Yep. So that's usually thought of as the primary inhibitory neurotransmitter in the brain. So it's a neurotransmitter that would make a neuron a little bit less likely to fire off. So some seizures are caused by neurons not firing. Is what you're saying. Is that right? Well, so the idea would be that um, sometimes if neurons get too excited or they're too likely to fire, then maybe a network of them will produce something like a seizure. And if you give a medication that works, that increases activity at GABA receptors, that may make them less likely to fire and you may prevent the seizure from happening. Make sense? Yes. Okay. Understood. Well, since we're talking about um, anti-seizure medications, let's talk about epilepsy surgery. I want to tell you a little uh, story. I had a student, um, a wonderful student, we'll call him David. And David had epilepsy. In fact, he's the one that had a seizure in my office at one time. And that mm -hmm. was not fun to look at at all. But one of the things about David, he was always positive. He was always happy. He was always, he, he was, uh, he was a Christian. He was always looking at his, uh, his happiness and his faith in God. And I tell you, this is a guy that probably will never drive in his life because mm -hmm. he has seizures and, uh, you know, he has a very limited life. He's making a good living now as an engineer, but um, he went in for some epilepsy surgery. And one of the things they did is they cut a flap out of his skull mm -hmm. and they placed on his skull a, a, uh, an array of sensors that they were doing something with. Yep. And it, it, was, it was a total failure. In fact, his brain mm. began to swell up. They had to stop the ah. procedures and uh, sew him back up. So uh, I guess sometimes those things work, uh, that, that kind of epilepsy surgery. Tell, tell me about epilepsy surgery and... I don't know. Do you know what they were trying to do with that array of sensors? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I, I can. I'll work up to explaining what they were doing there. Okay. So maybe just some general background. So many patients with epilepsy will become seizure-free on one of the medications they try. Uh, in fact, we usually quote two-thirds of patients will become totally seizure-free on one of their first two appropriately chosen anti-seizure medications. Wow. So those are reasonably good numbers. Those are good numbers. My, my friend David, uh, he tried diet. He tried this uh, operation, yeah. everything, nothing worked. So he yeah, was in so that one third. he was in that other yeah. third. Yep. So we would say they have drug-resistant epilepsy. And unfortunately, once you fail two appropriately chosen medications, the chances of responding to other medications gets lower. So like 3 to 10% chance, we say, for any particular medicine you try. So like you said, we think about things like dietary options. The ketogenic diet can be helpful for some patients. And then surgical options is the other option. 
For surgical options, you can think of sort of two broad groups. One group as resective options, or we would say like curative options, things that we think will totally get rid of the seizures. Uh, and the other group is palliative options, things that aren't going to totally get rid of the seizures, but they'll make them happen less often. Palliative. What do, I, I've heard the word. What does it mean? Uh, palliative means you don't think you're fixing the problem, but you're going to make things better than they were. Oh, okay. I tell that with people. I can't solve your problems, but I can help you enjoy them. So <laughs> it's kind, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of that like that. Is, huh? That is one way to put it. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. So patient resective surgery, the idea is pretty simple. If you have seizures that only come from one spot in the brain, and you can show that that part of the brain is not doing anything else that's essential, meaning you wouldn't have terrible problems if it were removed, then you can take that part of the brain out and then the patient's seizures are gone. Okay, so it's a simple idea, but practically it's difficult to execute that. So I think in David's case, what they were trying to do is they were trying to uh, locate those points exactly. of seizure. Yep. So that is the challenge of epilepsy surgery, locating exactly where the seizures come from. We have a variety of different tools for doing that, different imaging tools, different EEG tools. Um, but even with those tools, you know, there is still, we still don't get as definitive an answer as we would like in many cases. I see. So in, in David's case, usually you start by doing, you know, some imaging studies like an MRI, functional MRI. Uh, you can do a PET scan to look at brain metabolism you can do a kind of scan called a spec scan to look at blood flow right at the start of a seizure and then blood flow at other times and see, you know, what changes right when the seizure starts. Well, that was the interesting thing. He went to the hospital and he says, all my life I've been trying to avoid seizures. And I went to the hospital and they told me, try to have a seizure, <laughs> which was, <laughs> yeah, which was yeah. terrible because that's the only way that they, they could do the localization of his, if he's, is if he had a seizure. Yeah. Yep. So that is part of the workup for epilepsy surgery. It's sort of the opposite of what we're usually trying to do. Uh, yeah. yeah. So there are a number of tools that we do. We start out with non-invasive tools. And then sometimes if we need more information, uh, we'll actually record directly from the brain itself, which is, I think, what uh, they were doing with David. Yes. And unfortunately, yeah, unfortunately it didn't work. So I guess it works sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes you can have edema like that. That's sort of a rare complication, but it can happen in some cases. Thankfully, it's never happened when I've been involved. Okay. Actually, there, there are two ways you can do that monitoring. You can do it either, like you said, with a grid that you place on the surface of the brain right. and it records from the brain. Uh, now we often do stereo EEG. So we pick specific places where we want to record from and then um, use a robot basically in the operating room to find those exact trajectories that we want, drill small holes in the skull at those locations, and then pass an electrode through into the brain. And it actually turns out that's tolerated much better. So patients, yeah, we, we've done that with like a number of patients at this point, and none have certainly had any of those sorts of problems that you were describing with David. Mm -hmm. Most patients don't even need like ibuprofen or Tylenol or anything afterwards. They just are stuck in their hospital bed watching TV and waiting for a seizure to happen. I, that, that, that's something incredible. There's no nerves in the brain. Right. 
Are you familiar at all with Elon Musk's work in um, Neuralink, where he's trying to... You know, I haven't followed it closely. I've been thinking as a neurologist, I probably should pay more attention to what he's doing, just so I can ask or answer other people's questions. Well, I think what he's doing is, uh, you know, I don't think that uh, he wants to to link the human brain directly to all of Wikipedia. I'm already direct. I'm already connected with it, but Wikipedia, it's just... It's just through my fingers as opposed right. to my brain. Yep, in and your eyes. I only can think of one thing at a time. I mean, when I multiply two three-digit numbers, I have to write it down to keep track of my short-term memory and my multiplication tables in order to, to work it out. So I don't know what the neural link is going to do in terms of increasing my intelligence, but the place where it seems to be working and working nicely is helping people with... Um, that are, um, you know, paraplegic or have, yeah. have some motor function problems, and they can do they can do things with this neural link that they couldn't do before. So anyway, that I think is kind of promising. Yeah, I think so. A, a number of people are interested in, um, you know, brain machine interfaces, and yeah, and it is promising, particularly for people who, yeah, have problems with sort of the normal way that we would interact with the world. Yes. So I think it will do a lot of good for people. And I'm just wondering if he or anybody else is looking at these neural links and seeing if they can help do things like uh, diagnose uh, epilepsy. Yeah, I, it's using the same basic tools. Uh -huh. um, I It's probably, people are looking at that in different ways. Yeah, lots of people in the epilepsy field. Okay, we're talking about different ways to fix the brain. We have medications. We have um, such as anti-seizure medications, antidepressants. We have epilepsy, epilepsy surgery. And uh, another one is uh, devices and the response to neurostimulation. How do I stimulate my neurons? I think I wake up some morning and I want to uh, stimulate my neurons. So <laughs> how do I do that? Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know that you need to do, use any of the methods we're going to talk about here. Okay. You know, probably going for a run is a reasonable thing. Yes, okay. <laughs> to try just to, to get a little stimulation if, if you're not suffering from these problems. Yeah, so there are a variety of different ways neurostimulation can be done. Um, one of the oldest sort of tools that's been used in the field of epilepsy uh, is the vagal nerve stimulator. The bagel nerve. What? What is the that? Bagel nerve. Bagel so nerve. Ner Not yep. the bagel nerve. Bagel. Not is the a bagel type nerve. Of bread. Okay, the bagel nerve. Okay. Although the bagel nerve does innervate your stomach, so there might be a relationship there. <laughs> okay. Very good. Yeah. So it's a nerve that um, is responsible for controlling a variety of different autonomic functions, including the stomach. What is autonomic? You're, you're using words and I'm kind of embarrassed. Oh, I don't know them, but I am old enough where I'm no longer embarrassed by asking questions. So yeah, I appreciate the questions. Okay. So you can sort of divide the nervous system up into two parts. There is the somatic nervous system. So the one that deals with uh, controlling muscles and the senses and that sort of thing. And then there's the autonomic nervous system. That's the one that's responsible for control of your uh, various inner organs or guts and that sort of thing. So yeah, you can think of it as like controlling your stomach and your your heart and other organs like that. Okay, thank you. Go ahead then. Right, so the vagal nerve stimulator. So the vagal, someone discovered that you can attach a device that's sort of like the uh, pacemaker um, to the vagal nerve in the neck. and repeatedly stimulating that nerve for whatever reason seems to make patients have seizures less often. Oh, Not all patients, but many patients. The mechanisms are not well understood, but there's a definite effect there. 
And subsequently, people have realized that uh, that sort of simulation may be helpful for other disorders too. For example, it can be used for refractory cases of depression. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that was sort of the first pass of neurostimulation. So I, I had I, I, I have a, a, a cousin that was suffering from a lot of pain. And he mm-hmm. went in and they did something with, with the spine in order to yeah. alleviate his, his pain. And they went in and they, I guess it's very sensitive to the location. And so they were, they were poking around his, um, his, his problem was with in his bowel region. And so they were poking around and he, one of them went directly to his groin and he started, he started jumping up and down and all, all of the uh, the nurses and the doctor says, what's going on? And he said, it's in my groin. And they all started laughing. But, yeah. uh, but uh, is that an example of it where they do the neurostimulation in the spine in some way? Yep. Yep. That is another good example of neurostimulation. So for certain pain disorders, spinal stimulation specifically can be helpful. Uh-huh. Um, I haven't done as much with that myself, but it is another kind of neurostimulation. So in the field of epilepsy, sort of another option that we consider that's a little more direct uh, would be responsive neurostimulation or RNS. For this device, this device is actually implanted sort of on the underside of the skull. um, And you um, leave electrodes in the brain or on the surface of the brain that are attached to the device. Yes. Um, and the device records brain activity. And then if it detects a pattern that looks like a seizure pattern, uh, it can stimulate those electrodes. I see. The initial idea was this may be helpful because um, it may interrupt the seizure or prevent it from like developing or spreading to other areas. But it turns out there's actually probably also just as much and maybe more benefit that comes just from giving periodic stimulation to that area of the brain that's irritable and is producing seizures. So this sounds this sounds like a device that's wearable. Is that right? So this is not wearable because it's implanted into the skull itself. Oh, okay. Um, well, so you keep it with you all the time, but you're not wear. Well, I guess you're wearing it. It, it depends on your definition of wearing, I suppose. Right. Okay. Yes. Right. Understood. Yeah. But so, um, yep. You keep it with you all the time, and then there's a way to load information from the device to a computer, so your epilepsy doctor can look at the patterns that are happening, determine how often seizures are happening, and then decide whether we need to tweak how the device is detecting seizures or stimulating to prevent them. I see. Is is this a common thing? I don't know if I know anybody that has these uh, these things with uh, with a transplant. I don't. Yeah. You wouldn't call it a transplant. You would. Call I wouldn't it call a, it a transplant, right? Because it didn't come from another person. An implant, I think you would implants, say. Implants. Implants. That's a word I'm looking yeah. for. There. It's usually not the first thing we go to. Um, this would be used in patients who do have seizures coming from one area of the brain. But there might be some reason you wouldn't want to remove that area. Perhaps it's, you know, an important motor area or an important uh, language area. It also gets used occasionally if you have seizures that are coming from two different places. Say you have seizures that are coming from both of your temporal lobes. We know that uh, you can't remove both of your temporal lobes because if you do, you'll lose the ability to form new memories. So the device can be used as a uh, way in that scenario to, to help control the patient's seizures. But before you use this, you have to know the source of the seizures. Is that right? That's correct. Yep. 
Okay. So a lot of time and energy and effort uh, is spent doing our best to pin down exactly where the seizures come from. Okay. Okay. How to fix the brain? Medications, epilepsy surgery, neurostimulation devices. And the last thing I want to talk about, and this is a good segue into our next uh, topic that we're going to do in the next podcast, is cognitive behavioral therapy. Tell me about that. Right. So cognitive behavioral therapy uh, lies sort of in the domain of the mind um, or in the, the realm of uh, psychology. Um, the idea of cognitive behavioral therapy is if you have a disorder that's coming from pathologic thought processes, cognitive behavioral therapy involves meeting with a, um, a psychologist to, to sort of better understand what kinds of thoughts you're having what particular thoughts may not be beneficial or may be causing the dysfunction, and then coming up with ways to, to change those thought patterns. Um, so one example might be if, uh, if someone had, say, an eating disorder, because every time they looked at those, their, themselves, they thought, I, I look terrible, I'm, I'm horrible, I look ugly. The goal would be to get an idea of um, what specific thoughts are involved in that cycle. Yes. And then you would try to learn to replace those thoughts every time they happened with something else. Like, no, I know that's not true. Well, in fact, that, that's, that, that, that's a common symptom of depression. Mm -hmm. You think that you're no good, that, uh, you know, the yep. whole world's better than you are. And, yeah. uh, and I guess that just feeds back in itself and it makes you feel worse. But you're saying that this can be treated with therapy then. Right, exactly. So, you know, for many disorders, that is considered the gold standard for treating them. You know, particularly I'm thinking back to functional disorders that we've discussed already. Yes. That is the most effective thing we have to cure some of those disorders. Now, obviously, that's not going to cure everything, right? Your cure needs to be targeted to what the problem is. So you probably wouldn't cure epileptic seizures with cognitive behavioral therapy, that wouldn't be expected to work at all. Of course. But for many disorders, it can be beneficial or even the gold standard treatment. You know, I I have a good friend, and you probably maybe know him professionally. I don't know if he's a good friend. He's certainly an acquaintance. J.P. Moreland mm -hmm. from Biola University, uh, one of the greatest living Christian philosophers. And he suffered from incredible depression. Mm -hmm. And he wrote a book about it called Finding Quiet. I would recommend it to anybody who is suffering from depression that doesn't want to go to a therapist that maybe wants to, yeah. to self-treat. But it's called um, it's called finding quiet. And one of the things that well, he says first of all, you, you got to involve yourself. He's a Christian, so he says involve yourself in prayer. But go to the psychiatrist and get you know get the medication. Go to the psychologist. But one of the things he found very useful is anytime he had a depressing thought, he always gave it a name like Frank. <laughs> okay. Mm. And so he yeah. had this, he had this depressing thought and uh, depressing thought that he was no good. And he would talk to Frank as opposed to pound it down inside of him. And I thought this was really ingenious. He, he said, uh, hi, Frank, boy, you're back again. I didn't want you back, but here you are. You know what? I don't have time for you now, but uh, maybe later go away. <laughs> and so he, he dealt with it in that specific fashion. And I'm sure that this is part of this, uh, therapy that people go through yeah. for depression, doing things like that and going through these mental exercises in order to break that loop, that feedback loop that makes them more, more depressing. Yeah. The, the goal of therapy is always to, to give the patient, you know, techniques that they use to address those problems. So 
you always think of it as a time not when where you're trying to teach someone how to those sorts of strategies to order their mental life as opposed to you know just the thing itself that helps being there in therapy wonderful wonderful We want to talk today about the so-called mind-brain problem. Sometimes it's called the mind-body problem. And it's been debated for centuries. And the question is, is the mind just a part of the brain? Is an emergent property of the brain? Is consciousness part of the brain? Or are there parts of the mind that are distinct from the brain? Now, there's two schools of thought in the extreme on this. There's the monist who believe that the mind is an emergent property of the brain. And then there's the dualist, who believe that the mind is separate from the brain in some sense. There might be some overlap, but they, they, they're certainly not distinct. I would wager that most theists are dualists. Uh, Descartes, for example, in talking about the mind-body problem, talked about the mind as the soul. And uh, Andrew, you have mentioned to me that you think that most neurologists are monists. Is that right? And if so, how come? So I think there is, yeah, and a bent towards being a monist for a couple of reasons. One is, I think, you know, just from a worldview standpoint, you know, many of the people I've worked with in neurology seem to be of a naturalist bent. So the idea being that all there is is the physical world. And I think that lends itself to the modest viewpoint of the um, mind-brain problem. The other practical reason is it sort of comes out of how the field of neurology developed. You know, we talked a little bit about strokes and how you look at a patient who has an injury to a particular part of the brain, and then you see that they lose a particular function. So neurology kind of has embedded into it this way of thinking that certain parts of the brain do certain things um, are associated with certain functions. And it just sort of naturally leads to the idea that, okay, the physical substrate of the brain does this thing or that thing. And so probably it's responsible for all of how a person is. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Okay. Understood. So, wow. Most of the neurologists are modest. You know, um, in, I, I, I helped write a biography of Walter Bradley with Bill Dembski, and Walter was in deposition one time, and he was questioned about the difference between a naturalist and a theist, in his, in his case, specifically a Christian perspective. Mm-hmm. And he was asked the question from an ACLU lawyer who was a naturalist and atheist. He said, uh, uh, Dr. Bradley, are you a Christian? He says, well, yes, I am. And he says, well, how as a Christian can we trust you to come up with with definitive disinterested answers in the area of, of science? And he was, Walter was uh, testifying about science books in the state of Texas. It's a really big thing because mm-hmm. when a science book is adopted in the state of Texas, it's adopted in a number of number of different states. Uh, Bradley's response was, I think, wonderful. He said, uh, I'm sorry, sir. I'm not the one with the problem. You're the one with the problem. You have you have ensconced yourself in a small silo of expertise and belief, and everything that you come across must fit within this silo. Now, I can accept things happening in a in a natural way. He says, but from my perspective, it isn't the question of whether or not God did it. The question was how God did it. 
And I would say, sir, that I am, I have a much broader perspective and can be much more objective than you are because you are constrained to this little silo of naturalism. I thought that was just a beautiful response and I think a very appropriate response for people that are, are naturalists. And this is what you're saying of neurologists. They believe they're monists, so everything that they see has to be fit within this little silo of, of naturalism. It's uh, it's frustrating. I mean, well, it's <clears throat> it's a good example. I we are all sort of we all like to think of ourselves as impartial or you know fair judges of things, but we're all constrained by the things we believe about the world. Sometimes those you know those uh, assumptions have practical implications for a question. Sometimes they don't. But in this case, you know, if you are someone who thinks that there only is the physical world, then, you know, of course you're going to say there's, it doesn't make any sense for there to be a brain and a soul, like two separate things. Yes. You, you're sort of stuck believing that it has to come out of the physical activity of the, of the brain itself. Right. And, and, you know, to be fair, like someone who is a Christian has probably some of the same or bringing some of the same assumptions in and it affects how we think about the problem a little bit too. You know, if you're a Christian, you're told in the Bible that there is a soul and there is uh, the body and they're different things. And so, you know, you can't help but bring that into how you study these sorts of problems. That's true. Everybody has their bias. I always say artificial intelligence without bias is like water without wet. <laughs> you you, you <laughs> exactly. have to you you have to have some sort of uh, uh, bias. But uh, in my case, there's been a number of times when my mind has been changed, um, mm-hmm. and I yep. think that that's one of the beautiful things about um, about faith and specifically Christianity is that you can address any problem. There's nothing which is nothing which prohibits you from looking at anything. Well, you mentioned some things which happen in neurology. Um, that you think are problematic for the monist. And I'm wondering if you could uh, go through some of those from a neurologist's point of view. Sure. Now, I think it's probably worth giving the disclaimer that I'm not sure that any of these things are like an absolute invalidation of the monist standpoint. Would you say, however, they are evidence of dualism? Yeah. They're... they're can, they are problems for monism or things to consider. Well, yeah, I, I, I love I love a quote by Stephen Hawking. He said, nothing in physics is ever proved. You just accumulate evidence. Nothing in <laughs> right. physics is ever proven. You just accumulate evidence. So this right. is evidence for dualism. Not a proof, yeah. but evidence. But, okay, right. And neurology is way worse than physics too, right? Like, <laughs> yes. I mean, there, there is plenty of unknown in both domains, but... One of the things that draws some of us to neurology is just there's so little that's known um, that there there's still a lot to be learned, which is fun. Um, but yeah, I always think it means you should also be cautious about making absolute assertions um, as to how things are working. You shouldn't make absolute conclusions about something. You're absolutely right. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> okay, so let's start with epilepsy since that's sort of the area that I know best. Yes. Okay, so if you assume that the soul entirely comes out of the brain or that the mind and the brain are the same thing, you would think that there would be, 
you know, if you remove enough of the brain, you'd expect to see substantial changes in a person. But we can, you can do fairly dramatic surgery affecting part of the brain and not see a change in how the person acts or how they behave or who they are. So we have some patients who have more severe kinds of epilepsy where seizures start up on one side of the brain and they can't be controlled. So there's a procedure you can do called a hemispherectomy um, where that entire half of the brain is removed. They take out half of your brain? So historically, they took out literally half of the brain. Then they discovered there are a lot of complications that come with actually physically removing half of the brain. Okay. So they've shifted to disconnecting half of the brain. So they still take out a chunk of that brain. They remove, or they disconnect the corpus callosum. They disconnect other motor pathways. And that, the physical brain still remains there, but it's not connected to anything else and not doing anything anymore. Really? Okay. Yeah. So even with removing half of the brain, the person doesn't seem to change. They might have, they will have some new deficits, so they won't be able to see half of the world on one side. Uh, they probably won't be able to move their arm on one side well. They won't be able to move their leg well. There can be some like subtle changes in cognitive function, like how they would do on an IQ test, but it's not a very dramatic change. So their IQs would probably go down a little bit. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, they okay. would. Yeah. But it's not like they're a different person, despite half of the brain being gone. Oh, my goodness. One of the arguments that I've heard, this is from a neurosurgeon, Michael Ignore, mm -hmm. who does, um, he does operations. I, there's probably a fancy word for it. He calls it a split brain operation, where they yeah. go through and they, they separate the left half of the brain hemisphere from the right half of the brain hemisphere in order to get rid of communications for an epileptic signal that starts on one side of the brain and goes to the other side of the brain. If you do, if you do the, uh, the, the slicing, then that, that communication path is disrupted. Now, if we had a mind associated with the brain after that, you essentially have two brains, I think. And uh, it, it's like you said in these, well, let's see a word I learned from you hemispherectomy. Yep. <laughs> it's like in that where they re remove part of your brain. You're still you. You, you, still, have, you still have the same mind, uh, if you will. Right. So that's maybe even better evidence that it's more complicated than just the physical substrate of the brain correlating directly to like who you are. Because like you said, there aren't two yous. Those, you don't see those people arguing with themselves or uh, running into those sorts of problems. I do understand that they do have sometimes some psychological problems they have to overcome. Yep, it is true. And there are there are some like uh, symptoms you can expect to see right after surgery. Okay. Some of those get better. Sometimes there can be sort of strange things that happen. Some, you know, uh, an arm moving on one side of the body in a way that you don't expect or that you don't feel like you have total control over. But again, it's not like they're two separate people living in one brain. So I, I think that that is very, very compelling. Now, are you familiar with the split brain operation? Do they totally do the split brain? There, there's still something common, isn't it? Isn't there? Isn't there still a pathway? There are still connections, yeah. So the split brain operation uh, more formally is called the corpus callosotomy. The corpus callosum is the major connection between the two halves of the brain. There's still some small connections, uh, an anterior and posterior commissure. 
um, and some frontal connections as well. But I, I think it's, I wouldn't expect um, those are mitigating a lot of a person's consciousness. So all of that to say, I think your point holds true that the fact that you don't become two people with a corpus callosotomy is a problem for the, uh, for the monist viewpoint. Another one that you pointed out, which I agree, is evidence of that the mind is separate from the body or near-death experiences. You've been around a lot of patients that have had brain surgeries and have probably been anesthetized, mm-hmm. maybe to the point of, uh, I don't know, I, I don't think that they're brain dead, or maybe they are brain dead, and but they come back and they've had these incredible out-of-world experiences. Uh, tell yeah. me about your experiences and your thoughts about near-death experiences. Well, yeah. So, you know, actually, my experiences in that domain are relatively limited. There aren't too many I've had who have run into those sorts of experiences. But I understand that you have researched some of these things, right? Uh, working towards uh, putting something together, yeah? Oh, yeah. In fact, I, I, I think that it's just uh, just incredible evidence of something happening above and beyond the the brain. And there is this great book that I just read by Bruce uh, Grayson. It was called After. And Bruce Grayson was a psychiatrist. And he got interested in near-death experiences. And he actually formed a society that studied them. He published mm-hmm. a lot in them. He had a journal, which he, which he started on near-death experiences. And this is really interesting. If you go to Amazon.com, they have a list of like tens and hundreds of books on near-death experiences. So yeah. it's something which has just become popular in the last, I don't know, decade or so. I think it's because of the medical capability of resurrecting these people after they are brain dead and body dead and having these um, the, these out-of-body experiences. But Grayson points out, he says that 90% of the people that have these near-death experiences believe that they are real. They are also life-changing. They come out of this. Uh, they come out of this situation, get, get, you know, totally, totally different people. Yeah. And he, he just he just finds this astonishing. So I don't know if anybody's interested in in near-death experiences. Bruce Grayson's book is recommended. It's called After. Now he's a psychiatrist. He isn't a theist, and so his. I don't know. For some reason, being a not being a theist gives people more credibility. I don't know if that's necessarily true, mm. but but we use that a lot. If you want a more theist book, I think a great one is by uh, John Burke called "Imagine Heaven," and he also has a sequence of videos on YouTube. And the sequence, the, the videos on YouTube are incredibly compelling because I tell you, you read about near-death experiences. That's one thing. You talk to the people who have experienced the near-death experiences, and it's totally different. You see their commitment. They begin to cry. They begin to break down. And a lot of people display wonderful, wonderful experiences of kind of going to heaven, if you will. And that's what John Burke says that they do. Bruce Grayson doesn't say heaven, but it is it, it is kind of a uh, an afterlife experience. But the ones that are chilling are, are the ones that went to hell. Hmm. And you want to watch something that is just chilling, watch the John Burke um, interview with a guy that went to hell. And you see this guy, he breaks down. He just starts crying and sobbing when he relives this near-death experience. And you know that indeed these are these are real experiences in the sense that 90% of the people that have them say that they are real. 
Now, I actually asked asked a uh, one of your one of your colleagues, uh, Tononi, mm-hmm. yeah, about near death experiences. He said, "Well, you know, I can give you drugs like um, I don't think he mentioned it, but LSD or peyote mushrooms mm-hmm. or something like that. Yeah, and you can experience something similar. But there's near death experiences which are uh, documented, and it's more than one. Again, it doesn't it isn't proof, but it's it, it's it's certainly evidence." about these experiences that um, these near that, that the things that these near-death experience people go through, uh, one of which is in more than one equation, one, one equation, that's my engineer coming out, more than, <laughs> more than one occasion that uh, somebody who has been blind since birth is able to see. Hmm. And I, you know, what the heck is happening there? They talk about the, there's this one uh, story about a girl that, didn't know what she was experiencing, but finally she she saw herself on the operating table and she was able to identify, I think it was something she was wearing or his, her hair or something like that. And she says, oh my goodness, I'm seeing for the first time in my life. There's other cases where people had out-of-body experiences. They could, uh, they could tell things that happened um, external uh, to the operating room. Mm-hmm. Uh, in one case, there were objects which were not visible at all from any any perspective, and the person experienced them. In fact, Bruce Grayson, the, the way he got interested in near-death experiences was really fascinating. He said he was eating his, um, he was eating French fries or something like that, and he was putting ketchup on them, and he had a beeper. So he's been in this area for 40 years. The guy's been doing near-death experiences for 40 years. So he uh, had, his beeper went off, and they used to call that beepalepsy, <laughs> where the beep went off and he jumped, yeah. and, and he spilled ketchup on his tie. Well, he took his napkin and he dabbed it in a sheet of water and he, he rubbed it and tried to get it off and uh, it couldn't go off. It turned out at the time he was treating, he was a psychiatrist now, he was treating a girl that had tried to commit suicide that was in a deep coma. And he began to talk to her sister, trying to tell her what was going on with her sister that tried to commit suicide. Well, the next day or in a couple of days, he met with the suicide victim and and they began to talk and the suicide victim who was in a coma said, yeah, I, uh, you know, I saw you. And Grayson said, well, yeah, sure. You know, um, I don't know. I I'm, I'm a big skeptic. If I hear a single, a single anecdote, I'd like mm-hmm. to see a yeah. bunch of them in order yep. to accumulate evidence, but a, a single anecdote doesn't make it. Uh, but she says, yeah, I saw you talking to my sister and he thought, yeah, yeah, sure. Okay. He said, she said, yeah, you were wearing a, a gray flannel suit and your your tie had this red spot on it. Mm-hmm. So she was able to actually identify that that red spot, not having seen her sister or you know talk to anybody else um, in terms of that uh, out-of-body experience, that near-death experience. And I don't know how those sort of experiences, such as blind people seeing, such as identifying objects not visible anywhere, and these other things, um, I don't see that how they could be induced by taking LSD or peyote mushrooms. Right. I Yeah, I agree. I think that that is the most, if you're trying to argue for a dualist perspective, those sorts of stories are the most compelling from near-death experiences, ones where people witness what happens while they are cardiac arrested or that sort of thing and can 
reproduce those details. It's it's hard to explain how that would happen just from a monist viewpoint. Yeah, exactly. And um, and when when pressed on this, most people kind of change the subjects. In other words, this is this is not addressable. They think it's some sort of parlor trick or, or some sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, right. And, you know, to be fair, it's easy enough to say, oh, maybe some of those stories have just been made up or people added those details. Yes. And, you know, I haven't talked directly to the people who have had these sorts of experiences, but yeah, I don't know. I prefer to take them at face value at this point. Yeah, but, you know, talking, re- reading again, uh, Bruce Grayson's book called After, he has documented thousands of these near-death experiences, yeah. and he has a number of these unexplainable cases, which are, are documented. I mean, they're just—I don't know if they're chilling. They're a little bit chilling, but they're—they're they're also pretty compelling. I think they are. So, um, I guess I've—I have revealed myself as a dualist. Where are you at? <laughs> um. So, where am I? I am a dualist as well. I'm perhaps a weaker dualist than some. There are certainly all sorts of ways that the brain and the mind are interrelated. I think I mentioned in passing, right? Like the, you can't remove both temporal lobes because if you remove both temporal lobes, you can't form new memories. Yes. You know, yeah, I, memories seems like something that's an important part of what the soul is or, you know, the, our, our mind or our spiritual self. So again, it, it strikes me as a way where the two certainly are closely linked together. Oh, I don't think, I don't think it's distinct. I think that there is fuzzy overlap. Yeah. But I, 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 I think I believe, I think is in the area of what you say, you think that, uh, yeah, there, there is kind of a compelling evidence that the mind is uh, not totally a part of the emergent property of the brain. Right. So the question becomes, can you explain, is is the mind entirely dependent on the brain or can it exist apart from the brain or are there parts of the mind that are definitely distinct from the physical brain? Yes. And, and I think that's probably true, or I think that is true. Now, part of my reason for believing that actually comes more, I think, from my faith than what I know about neurology, if that makes sense. Okay, well, let me let me ask you about that. You and I are both followers of Christ, and uh, yeah. you have some some thoughts on what uh, Scripture teaches your faith um, from the doctrine of resurrections, uh, and you mentioned, yeah. I think, 1 Corinthians 15. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, Paul is very clear um, that there is life beyond this one, um, and that if we... If we follow Christ, uh, then we will, after we die, be resurrected and be given a new and glorified body. The implication there, too, is that we remain the same person, but with a new body. So that belief really requires that the mind somehow be separable from the physical substrate of the brain. Right. If one is going to talk about things such as eternal life, right? Right. If they were one and the same, then when the brain was gone, there wouldn't be any way to preserve the mind, preserve the person. But as Christians, we're told that will happen. So you're stuck saying at least that the two can be disentangled. Now, I can can sympathize with someone potentially who says, you know, all of what we experience as the mind comes about because of the physical substrate of the brain. And then 
God creates a new brain that somehow like starts at the same point and then the mind comes out of that one. So some might argue that that's still some sort of in-between position between like dualism and monism or like some kind of soft monism, I guess. Yeah. And I can't work out like specifically which of those things is happening. Um, I think the thing I care the most about is um, saying that I, I really don't agree with the hard sort of monism that the mind is sort of, it's there, but it comes from the physical substrate and it's kind of an illusion. And actually everything you do is just determined by your physical brain. Um, and you're sort of a prisoner to that. I reject that philosophy and teaching. I think there are all sorts of problems that come from that and that it's not, you know, compatible with the Christian worldview. One of the people that I learned from quite a bit, uh, Andrew, was Roger Penrose, mm-hmm. who is a naturalist. Yeah. Who believes that the human brain and the computer can never be creative. He wrote an entire book called The Emperor's yeah. New Mind about this. Just a fascinating book. Yet uh, Penrose believes that there can still be a naturalistic explanation. And we're seeing this happening more and more now as people are beginning to talk about maybe there's something happening in the quantum realm. The idea of my book, Non-Computable You, that I wrote was that uh, that everything that a computer does is algorithmic. Yeah. And there are things that humans do which are non-algorithmic. They can't be decide- They can't be explained by step-by-step procedures. Yep. Penrose is actually the one where I got this idea from, even though he's a mm-hmm. naturalist. But he looked around and he said that, well, you know, that the only thing in this world that I can think of that is non-algorithmic, that is still naturalistic, is quantum mechanics. And he looked at the quantum world, which is non-algorithmic. The collapse of a wave function is totally non-algorithmic. And he says, I think that the secret to consciousness lies there. And then there's been other people which have come across and they talk about the idea of quantum quantum consciousness. However, uh, trying to review the material, I see no evidence of that this quantum theory has any traction. Yeah. It isn't to say that it won't. But my point is, is that being, being a theist and talking about my silo being outside, including naturalism and also um, outside of naturalism, I do believe that maybe quantum, quantum things may someday indeed prove or lend evidence to why we are conscious. We just don't, we just don't know yet. It could be, and we might never know. Yeah. I, I mean, I think if you were a naturalist, you could probably make a good argument for a monistic worldview that didn't involve quantum behavior. But yeah, I, I don't know either. You can argue sort of everything is a result of quantum mechanics, right? Well, I guess, yeah, if you drill down, <laughs> if you drill down deep enough, I suppose you can. Right. Uh, but of course, I, I maintain that uh, there are things which are non-algorithmic. I would talk about human emotions, yeah, such yeah. as love, compassion. And the non-obvious ones are sentience, understanding, and creativity. Uh, properly defined, we have, to, we have to go through and we have to define what those are before we can talk about them. But uh, properly defined, yeah, they're not going to be creative. Uh, they're not going to be um, uh, sentient. And they're not going to understand what they're doing. Uh, and that's my contention and the entire, you know, focus of my book. So, yeah. but I believe that, you know, maybe there is something to the quantum. And then you have to ask the question. Um, let me ask you this. See what you think. There are, there are organs which are grown in pigs. Okay. Mm-hmm. They do like a pancreas because yep. the 
pig is very close to humans in some biological sense that I don't understand. And they asked the person that was growing the pancreas and the pig, hey, could you grow a brain in the pig, a human brain? Mm-hmm. And the answer was yes. And then the, <laughs> the question is, if you grew a brain in a human pig, would there be any sort of thing such as consciousness or uh, non-algorithmic things that it could do? I think that that is totally non-answerable now. I don't know, maybe you have some thoughts on it, but... Uh, yeah, I the closest I've come to dealing with that question, I guess. Uh, so, you know, I'm interested in epilepsy from a research standpoint, too. Actually, um, a lot of what I do is computer modeling of seizures. Oh. Which ironically sort of, you know, assumes this correlation between the physical world and, you know, what people experience on a higher level brain um, or higher level mind function. Yes. Um, But anyway, in thinking about different ways to study this, I talked briefly with um, some folks here who do research with um, brain organoids. What what is a brain organoid? So you basically take uh, certain kinds of cells from a person and you can induce them to turn into neurons. And then you can induce them to start um, following typical brain development patterns, you know, using some of the same techniques you would use to make like a pig pancreas or that sort of thing. So you have little clumps of brain tissue, basically, that grow in a dish. And so my question for them was, oh, cool, you have these shapes and they, um, that are sort of organized layers of neurons and that sort of thing. Um, do they have seizures or can you make them have seizures? And he kind of laughed and said, that's a great <laughs> question. It's like, I don't really know. <laughs> So when you have a structure like that, like certainly they don't do normal sort of activities and it's hard to understand whether they even like have typical abnormal brain activities, you know, common dysfunctions like seizures or, or other problems. Interesting. So those technologies are very interesting, very, very young, shall we say. So what, what are they using these brain organoids for? Are they using it to supplement missing brain tissue or something? No, no. I They're mo- used mostly for research at this point to better understand brain development and sort of the sequence of events that happens in neurons and potentially to use, understand some kinds of disorders too. In your crystal ball, do you think they will ever be used for that sort of purpose, for supplementing brain tissue? Um. Not soon, okay. if ever. That's that's a safe answer, Andrew. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. I would say definitely not in the next five years. Okay. Well, that's going to be really interesting. And anything beyond five years, I'm really hesitant to say anything about. Okay. I want to leave you with a neurological uh, uh, joke that I do with my kids around visitors. Uh, when my kids were like one and a half, this is totally off topic, brand new, brand new topic. Okay. When they were about one and a half, they were just learning to talk. And uh, I I would say, okay, come here, uh, Joshua. Okay, where, where's your nose? And he would point to his nose. We, I would say, good. And where, where's your lips? He would point to his lips. And your eyes, he'd point to the eyes and then the ears. And then i say, where's your medulla oblongato? <laughs> <laughs> the reason that's so funny is medulla oblongato is just a funny word to say. Yeah, it really is. But I trained him to reach over and grab the bottom of the back of his neck. (laughs) He knew where the medulla oblongata was. So my kids have grown up knowing a little bit about neurology from from what I trained them as kids. That's 
That's great. <laughs> yeah, that is. Where's your medulla oblongata? I don't think there. I don't think there is another organ in the body that has as funny a name as the medulla oblongata. I agree with you. Okay. Well, Andrew, what, what a joy to talk to you. Yeah. Um, Actually, I have one other thing sure. uh, just before we move on that I wanted to uh, to mention. So, you know, we sort of talked about how your worldview affects how you look at some of these problems, whether you're a dualist or a monist. Yes. I do think that despite some people's worldview, though, there's maybe an implicit assumption or we naturally assume that people actually are dualists. So I think you see this when you see, so some of the most ardent um, monists are folks who also are arguing for one day we should be able to uh, transfer human consciousness into a computer. Oh, yes. Can we upload ourselves? Right. And, you know, you say, well, you make a different physical substrate and then move the same information over to this other system. But again, implicit in that is something that maybe monism isn't quite right, because how can you transfer, you know, the same person to a different thing if it's not entirely dependent on the physical substrate? Does that make sense? It, it does. Um, I have I have a problem with it even on a more fundamental level. Uh, I think, and again, I learned this from a Nobel laureate, Roger Penrose, mm -hmm. that there are parts of the brain and parts of our mind that are non-algorithmic. Yeah. If indeed that is the case, then when we upload ourselves to a computer, we can only upload the algorithmic part. Yep. We can't upload emotions. We can't upload the ability to be create or understand or be sentient or, or, or I believe, conscious. Um, mm -hmm. And so the, I think that if you took any person and you took away all of their non-algorithmic traits, they would be pretty boring people. <laughs> so well, certainly I don't know. true. Yeah. yeah. So I think that if we do a computer, it can't be the computers of the type we use today. Yep. It would have to, it would have to at least be one of these computers that was an organoid or something like that. And how you would do that, I have no idea. Right. Uh, so what, what do you think? You, you agree? I agree? Oh, I don't think that's anything people will ever be able to do. Yeah. Beyond that, I'm not exactly sure how to go about answering the question. Yeah, I think, you know, maybe we joke in neurology sometimes about uh, the idea of brain transplants as a solution to problems. <laughs> okay. Let me ask you, is that possible? No. Okay. It is not possible. currently. Could it ever be possible? Uh, I, I don't know. There are a lot of things I don't know. I, I could see that being a, a way of achieving immortality, maybe. Yeah, that, right. So that raises all sorts of interesting ethical questions, if something like that even were possible. And, you know, if you could do that, maybe that would give other answers to the uh, mind-body problem. I, my, my gut instinct is that that is never going to happen. Oh, I'm just wondering at the connectivity problems. I have read about people that have proposed head transplants. And of course, mm -hmm. this is really ridiculous. I think they've done it on animals. But uh, currently, the interface with the spine is so complicated that anytime you try to do a head transplant on a human being, that transplant recipient would be a quadriplegic. Right. Because yeah. you couldn't you couldn't connect the spinal cord. You couldn't get the right. uh, the rest of the body to work. So 
that doesn't seem to be a very good way of doing this. Yeah, probably not. Now, is it possible that like someday you could find a way of doing that and then give growth factors that caused things in the spine and brain to connect and maybe you could, you know, have some 20-year rehabilitation paradigm that would let you start to use things in the way you did before? Yeah. Maybe, I don't know, but I, I think it's unlikely. You know, it's interesting because I, I maintain that nature and humans abhor a spiritual vacuum. Yeah. And if, if you are a monist, you want to achieve immortality. Now, us as Christians, we've known about immortality for a long time. Yep. Their answer for immortality is the upload of the brain. So yeah. it's it's these two different, total different philosophies trying to achieve immortality in a different way. Right. I agree with you. And again, I think it shows that really all of us have some sense that there is more to us than just our physical body. Yes. If you're a monist, you probably had to work to try to unlearn that at some point. But, you know, the idea, the the part of you that has intuition that that's true, you know, sort of still peaks out sometimes. And I think that's where a lot of the discussion about uploading yourself to a computer has come from. Yes. Okay. Fascinating stuff. Andrew, this is this has been a great time. Um, I I've, agree. I've, I've really enjoyed uh, uh, chatting with you. We have been visiting with uh, Dr. Andrew Knox. Uh, Dr. Knox is a pediatric neuro- neurologist at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. Thank you, Andrew. I've, I've had a lot of fun. You're welcome. Blessings. So until next time, be of good cheer. This has been Mind Matters News with your host, Robert J. Marks. Explore more at mindmatters.ai. That's mindmatters.ai. Mind Matters News is directed and edited by Austin Egbert. The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the speakers. Mind Matters News is produced and copyrighted by the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence at Discovery Institute.